somehow spotted that guy and it, I couldn't get my eyes off him. Mm. And at some point I approached him just to get a closer look because I, saw, and I, knew, I, I had the feeling something's wrong. Mm. And I just spoke to him. I said, hey, you okay? And I just, and he turned around and pulled a gun on me and tried to shoot me in the head. Today we've got Andre Arle on the podcast. He's lived one of the most interesting lives of anyone I've come across. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, he suffered a little bit of a voice box uh, injury last week. So we struggled with audio for the first 16 minutes, but we managed to fix it after that. So just bear with us for the opening little bit of this podcast. Enjoy. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. So paint the picture. You were, when were you born? Early 60s? 61. 61. And where? In Bonn, Germany. Okay. And then what was the... I guess, what did your parents do for a living or what did your dad do for a living? What uh, kind of childhood? My father was the uh, second uh, press representative of the German government in the 1970s. He was a journalist, actually started as a journalist. And uh, my mother was the secretary for quite some years and somehow they found each other and uh, founded a family. <coughs> and that was in the, uh, in the early 1960s. And uh, I was the uh, first child of a total of four. Okay. So what... I guess I mean obviously your your dad or your parents were somewhat political. Were you raised in like in a you know in a political household or or no no you know but 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 then the the government was uh, kind of conservative liberal conservative I would say mm. and uh, no we were raised uh, very liberal okay I, say, yeah. I, I went to a conservative Catholic a Roman Catholic school um, where I did not succeed and then later on changed the school and. Uh, then finished my, my uh, so finished my grades. Yeah, well, quite a good results. You know. So what? Why didn't you succeed in the in the first school? It was just too too stiff. I was okay. kind of the the rebel yeah. with another buddy, and we were the first ones with long hair. We didn't, you know, comply with a sort of kind of uniform or nice, uh, you know, iron shirt and stuff like that. So we were the first ones with a leather jacket and had our first mopeds, you know, oh, okay. uh, ripped jeans and stuff like that. You know, they didn't like that. So what was what was the influence? Who was influencing you? Like what what celebrities or bands or athletes? Uh, I, I don't know. I think it was uh, Uriah Heep. <laughs> What's that? I don't even I know what that is. Uriah Heep was was a band in the seventies. Okay, you know the Lady in Black. I don't know if you okay. remember. Okay, yeah, 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 that's from Uriah Heep. I think the influence is kind of from okay. later the Rolling Stones. Right, right. Yeah. Now I know you've told me before that you raced motocross. Yeah, did you do it when you were young? I started quite early. Uh, I mean, for, for what I, because I was in school, I was in quite intense school. Uh, and uh, I started when I was 15. Okay. On little 50cc bikes. And then I got my first 125 when I was 16, 16 and a half. And then moved on pretty pretty quickly from the uh, national German uh, B class into the international class. And then I raced in the 125 and 250. Really? But I was still a student and we didn't have much, you know. So Money did your from home. did you fully fund it or did your parents no, help no, out? N no, they couldn't. You know, they had four kids to raise. Yeah, and, uh, we just had you know bought a house. So uh, no, it was all on my shoulders. I had five jobs. Okay, still going to school. I was working night shifts in factories, construction sites, all sorts of stuff. You know. Just to fund the racing. Yeah, just to fund the, uh, the motorbikes. Yeah. So you were in like the full European Championship. In the yeah 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 mainly uh, held in uh, we didn't go to the UK didn't have the funding for that but everything around like belgium netherlands uh, germany luxembourg 
And did you aspire to to be a professional, to make a living doing that no, during I, that I, time? I, I admired Roger de Costa and Erica Burst, these kind of guys. They were the heroes in the 1970s and early 80s in, in, mo- in traditional motocross uh, racing. Uh, I was dreaming of it, but yeah. I never actually anticipated it. Okay. How did it, how did it, why did it come to an end? Because I had a very big accident. What happened? Uh, I don't know. I had an accident in one of the factories uh, where I was working night shifts. Oh, not on the bike? No, not on the bike. I had several accidents on the bike because I didn't have the material, uh, the shock absorbers, stuff like that. You know, the, uh, the, the, my buddies, they were on the latest uh, yeah. stages like uh, Fox Shocks and stuff like that, all the, the goodies that came over from America. Yeah. And when they started stadium crossing, uh, early 1980s so we didn't have that stuff and uh, everybody else did but, but me and uh, I just you know I lost it suspension broke and stuff like that so I landed one one time I landed in the spectators oh jeez with my I didn't thank god I didn't hit anybody but uh, I, I crashed the grandstand with the bike so. so what what was the I guess industrial accident the work accident what, the work what accident I I was also doing some some small stunts for for movie production and stuff like that so I went after a night shift, 12 hours, lifting 42,000 kilos. That was the workload per night in, in the streets. <laughs> you know, these big tarmac roads that you put on wooden pallets, and then the forklift comes and then makes them basically working on a bell drive. And uh, and uh, we went home on my bicycle at 6 a.m. in the morning. I got the train to Zandvoort in the uh, Netherlands, did yeah. some you know, motorbike stuff, nothing, nothing crazy. And then we went back in the night uh, without any food and uh, nothing, uh, and then... Uh, Second night shift, and four o'clock in the morning, I just fell into the machine. Oh, jeez! I had to sacrifice a finger in order to get out. Don't send this, okay? It's just wow, <coughs> wow. So and that I had to, I had to, I had to make a decision because I wear myself out. I, you know, I had to start working with my brain instead of uh, you know, right? Worry my, my muscles out. Did you go to university? I, I, I was, I was um, planning to study in the U.S. and uh, had a gap year. Uh, in that time, I met a gentleman, because after after the motocross series, I started playing American football. I had to do something rough all the time in my life. So and I started playing for a mixed American-German uh, uh, football team that was mainly playing around the U.S. Army and Air Force bases, who were quite quite popular in, in those times. Okay, because you know, there was a lot of U.S. bases uh, in yes, Germany. Yes, yeah. I mean the Army and Air Force, yeah. And right. The, 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 the bases were playing against each other, and out of this kind of competition small teams developed and which is today the european football league okay so this, uh, was, i was one of the first so that's uh, that you got involved in that and then didn't go to university no, no and then then i was and then i was drafted to play in uh, texas um uh, at san antonio texas really college yeah, yeah. Uh, out of with three other european i was all european champion in my position i'm a fullback and middle linebacker okay and uh, then somehow i thought you know wh- why not you know study in the u.s and Scholarship, scholarship, yeah. and uh, and then I met a guy who was a um, firearms instructor for the SWAT team of the LAPD. We just bumped into each other, and I had in Europe or in the states? No, in the states. Okay, uh, while I was in San Antonio, and uh, I found this extremely interesting, and uh, he invited me actually to uh, to join a course okay. uh, with the LAPD uh, um, police academy uh, with the rookies, and I said, yeah, I, I come. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I went and I found it extremely interesting. And before that, I already had done uh, with some of my football buddies doing on-off jobs uh, for big stadium productions, kay. music industry. 
Security. Because security. Because we're mainly arranging a backstage security and um, taking care of VIP guests of the band or the artist. So a team between five and six guys, I would say. But mainly artists from a football team. I right. had no clue what we were doing. You know. Sure. They just wanted and big, scary, big, scary big, looking guys. Yeah, just big, big guys, you know. And, and, and because of our English skills, everybody, you know, spoke fluent English by that time already. So I thought, and uh, out of this, a uh, small business development, which was a one-man show in the beginning. And then going back to, Amer to America in 1986, Joining the uh, course with the LAPD, which was possible by that time, I was kind of the German rookie. Okay, I joined, you know, yeah, from police, uh, police uh, um, career that I said I was going to have in university. Invited me for a training course, Kay. which was okay for a week, and then I came back and I stayed for two months. And out of this idea, um, the idea of the super professional security agency evolved. Right. Okay, so you you were in Texas. Did you mm -hmm. complete school? Did you go no, for a no, year I broke at all? No, because I had this idea. I want to have okay. my own business. So you got you went to the you know the range with these guys mm -hmm. and did some odd jobs where you were security. Yes, and saw the inner workings of security. Yes, yes. and then it just came to you. Hey, I'm going to start a like a yes. special security I company. This, I found this material extremely interesting, and also I was um, I started very early to work with a gentleman uh, called Neil Young. Who was over in Europe? Everyone so knows who Neil Young is. Yes, yeah. and then he kind of um, promoted me um, further uh, through the word of mouth, and then uh, my first big client was David Bowie. Wow! And I worked with David Bowie for some of the big European stadium shows, and then he took me on uh, to uh, the U.S. and we spent a week in New York, and that was my first trip to the U.S. in that profession. So. Uh, Neil Young hired you, and you were you the only employee at that time? I, I was the only, yeah, I was a one-man show. So basically. what did he hire you to do exactly? Uh, just to take care of him, kind of a personal assistant. Uh, he was kind of very shy, and uh, he was uh, touring uh, Germany and then later on Europe, and I just uh, stayed with him for, I think, two weeks. Right. Yeah. Now and the management was very, very happy, and that kind of the, 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 the tour-promoting agency was the same as for David Bowie, and then they hired me for David Bowie because... That was a much more complex show, much, much bigger. Big right. stadium shows. Did you have to hire more guys for those? Yes, and from, from that day on, basically, it became, it started to become a small company. Uh, and then 1986, 87, we became incorporated, and I had my first guys okay. fully employed in the company. And then in 1989, I signed the Rolling Stones for the first time for the first European tour. And then we had actually a team on tour, and then it became more professional. We hired people with professional background, first, mm. you know, for example, um, special teams members, uh, former police officers. I had one instructor um, who was uh, working uh, with the um, English intelligence services who then later on also trained our guys. So suddenly out of this small one, two-man show, um, a serious company evolved. Right. Did you continue your, um, you know, education for whatever it may be, you know, martial arts or uh, firearms yes. or, like, strategy-type stuff? Yes. Uh, and where, stuff. Yeah, where would you go for those techni technical uh, schools? It depend, depends on different, different agencies. We got uh, still today very strong uh, ties with uh, um, some uh, members, former members of the U.S. Secret Service who helped us a lot, especially when the company grew bigger and the responsibilities grew with it, of course. And then we to work in difficult countries, South America, Mexico, mm. uh, Brazil. Right. We had a very strong representation in Brazil. Right. 
So those kind for that we were able to use basically vetted personnel that they have been using contractors that the U.S. Secret Service was using for official visits. Right out of this uh, grew a very uh, steady and still ongoing relationship. So initially, you s- you got those contracts on European tours. Yes. How many languages do you speak? Uh, fluent three. Three. Okay. Yes, fluent three and uh, German, English, German, English, uh, French, and I was fluent in Italian. Okay. Uh, when we took over a job for a big uh, Italian client, and it was mandatory that the entire team speaks Italian. So, you naturally so we had yeah we had a crash course all the team <laughs> had to have a crash course in Italian, and then I love the language very much, and then I continued with my private uh, teacher for one and a half years, and I was fluent in it. It comes back when I spend some time in Italian, but I, uh, today I would say three fluent and uh, half fluent in Italian. Right, right. So it really st- so your business really started with the concerts and. You know, move like rock stars, rock stars, uh, VIPs, yeah, big right. events, stadium events, and then it evolved. What at what point did you have the most employees? How many employees did you have? I guess, and I guess, I, I guess a lot of it would be subcontractors. Subcontractors. Right? We still today the the uh, group of companies, which is uh, three uh, offices. We have about four hundred fifty contractors wow. worldwide, and one hundred and thirty thirty four fully employed, with another. Uh, 700 uh, contemporary workers that we use mainly in stadium for stadium shows, you know, uh, security personnel for big shows, but 134 fully employed, full-time. Wow, and three offices. Three offices. Where are they? Uh, One is in the U.S., uh, one is in south of France, and then uh, the main office for the entertainment industry is in Cologne, Germany. Okay, so you've got your entertainment, and then how did other security jobs come about and what what I was the nature of those i split the company in 2003 when i was kind of a little bit fed up with uh, bureaucracy uh, in germany licensing sometimes it takes especially when you have jobs that require special licensing uh, farms licensing stuff like that they have to apply for the um, approval of the uh, german government which then contacts the uh, and the entity in uh, the country where you want work on mm-hmm. this sometimes takes six weeks and then the job's over sometimes we have um uh, a preparation time of less than 48 hours so we really? can we uh, depending on what it is yes absolutely right because i guess some people don't want to release their plan release their plan or there's some sort of an emergency um once we're assisting in, in one uh, very particular case uh, with a um, witness protection program Mm. where the German um, government or the respective police uh, entity has sourced it out to us because we had the equipment. We had the um, protected vehicles, armored vehicles. We had the equipment and so forth. So we kind of were supporting uh, this. And this was less than 48 hours, for example. Wow. So because of sometimes the processes are very, very slow and uh, they keep getting slower in Germany. So I didn't Mm. regret one minute to have actually uh, made that step. I moved the headquarters of the company to Miami in Florida. Okay. And we were dealing from there mainly with executive protection, corporate security stuff. Mm. And the show business related assignments we left with the German branch company uh, just outside of Cologne. Right. Right. What do you prefer? I mean, I guess there's unique challenges for each, you know, corporate's going to be way different than a big concert. It and, is. Um, you know, do uh, what percentage, I guess, of you know, say concerts? Are there 
really any problems. You see, I did this for nearly 30 years, and it kind of wears you out after a while because it's uh, plans are never followed. There's mm. always um, an adjustment. There's always changes, alterations uh, due to the situation or due to the nature of the client. Um, long, very long working hours, uh, mm. sometimes way up into the morning hours, and uh, you hardly get anything more than four to six hours of sleep. Right. Um, in the corporate world, executive protection, everything is much more structured. Mm. There's a plan uh, that is agreed upon, and you know the entire team follows. Uh, preparation time is much more structured, and uh, much less amendments or alterations to right. the plan. Right. You're not. You're uh, yeah. Dealing with CEOs instead of rock stars. Yeah, it's it's a little <laughs> bit different. I, I I love both. I must say, I enjoyed my time very very much. I still have beautiful relationships with uh, different artists until today. Uh, way uh, above the regular relationship that you have in a professional uh, manner. And I enjoyed it very much. Uh, my last tour I did with, I believe, uh, was Bruce Springsteen in Europe in 2004. And after that, I did oh, I did for Madonna in 2006. I did uh, several big stadium shows because uh, it was the time after 9-11. Everybody was still very, very nervous. Mm-hmm. And um, the precautions, uh, especially for big stadium shows, were immense. Right. And I was then asked to uh, by the management to assist in, in that matter, right? Uh, based on the structures and the knowledge that we, that we have in that field. So, have there any you know, and you don't have to answer it or not, but have there been any you know pretty imminent threats at those concerts that you've had to neutralize? Uh, in in my career, I would consider three cases as being uh, very imminent and uh, very dangerous. What were some Many uh, disturbed uh, people. Uh, one guy pretended to be, um, that was in the 1990s, um, to be the real artist, and the artist that we were working for uh, was the one who stole his voice. And, uh, and he was threatened to blow up uh, a big stage in a, in a stadium show, and then the police was canceling the concert and said, wait a minute, let's, you know, before we send 55,000 people home, yeah. Let's try to analyze the situation. Let's let's see how serious this threat is. And mm. uh, we learned a lot from that for future uh, preparations. And uh, the bad thing was uh, we remembered the guy. We played the tape because it was taped when the, he, he came in with the uh, with the threat over the phone. It was taped. Yeah. He called uh, different police stations. He called the stadium um, uh, reception. Uh, so it was taped. And we analyzed the voice. And I got my uh, assistant who was responsible for, the p- for that particular uh, client who was a very famous classic tenor. Okay. I wouldn't want to uh, mention any names sure. for, for obvious reasons. Um, a very famous person, and he was with this gentleman for more than 13 years. And uh, we remembered this voice, but we really had to think hard. I said, we, I remember, this, I have, I've heard this voice. It was... Uh, German language, but with a very strong Italian accent. Okay. And then we remembered, we arrested somebody in Munich who was storming into the hotel, trying to find the suite of that particular tenor, pretending that he was the real uh, master and not the guy up in the room because he stole his voice. And we had him arrested and he was put you know, aside from whatever. And he was that same guy. He was released from kind of mental health institution. And uh, so the police went back to the guy in Munich and they found one kilogram of C4 military explosives. 
Wow. How he ever got his hands on that stuff, we don't know. It never turned out to be. He was he was mentally ill. Yeah. But you know, he had serious uh, serious abilities to cause a lot of damage. Wow. Yeah. So what what were some of the other ones? Is there any more? Uh, two, I mean, do you deal? Uh, go two ahead. Two were two were just you know attacks. Uh, one with a firearm and one with a knife where somebody tried to. At a concert? Penetrate. No, no. That was one was uh, was uh, in. Uh, situation with an executive protection but in both cases i would say the people were mentally uh disturbed mm-hmm. it, it was not um, a kidnap attempt or something like that it was which just we would be prepared for it was just a random random guy just gone nuts right but out of the many thousand assignments that we did i mean it's it's not measurable right yeah. right so very very small very small very small incidents of course on big big uh, stadium shows concert shows you always have something uh, that happens in, in one big stadium show in Cologne uh, part of the stage collapsed and uh, the, the entire PA system was about to fall into the audience which definitely would have caused yeah serious injuries if not death this thing weighs you know tons and you saw the whole stage leaning to one side and then I start I decided to stop the show and evacuate wow. And uh, this had to be done within minutes. Right. And we had to use force to get the people out because nobody understood what was happening. Right. We thought it was maybe part of the show that the, the stage was shaking or something like that. And we saw this big PA towers, you know, moving. And uh, I knew something was going to happen. Wow. And then uh, the technicians came in and they, you know, they, uh, they secured the entire PA system. And then the stage manager came back to me saying later, within f- the next five minutes, the whole thing would have collapsed. Wow. So we had to evacuate the stage. So it's also uh, a lot of, in our job, is about public safety. To sure. Keep everybody, everybody safe, especially audiences in these kind of big, huge stadium events. Yeah, that would have to be the biggest factor is just so many people. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you can, people can get trampled yes. and yes. things like that. Yes, absolutely. And uh, people panic, tend to panic. Once we had a panic in Milan and San Siro Stadium, and a, big, a big rock show, where there was such a thunderstorm coming in that the entire infield of the arena got flooded. And then, of course, what happens when you have a lot of electric power? Right. Some of the ground power went into the audience, and people started acting funny because of all the electricity. It was to a minor, minor, di- you know, minor yeah. um, level because of you know the distance and the water and stuff like that. But you, c- you could feel the electricity actually in the water, and then we had to evacuate. But people started panicking. Yeah. So again, I had to interrupt, full house lights, and tell the people where to go and explain what had happened. Right. Because they didn't understand what the hell was going on. Holy Everybody cow. Everybody was trying, was trying to get out somehow, and people bumped into each other, fell, and and the infield fillet was filling in uh, very quickly. You know, we had thirty to forty centimeters of water in the infield of the stadium. Jeez. Stuff like that. So totally unexpected, and uh, and you just have to. Uh, sure reaction because there's no second chance there's no 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 absolutely not yeah i guess if you come across if you talk to the audience if you advise them to do the right thing Mm. not to panic and uh, if you're panicking yourself or your voice is kind of weak or you you start stumbling and kind Mm. of you have to actually execute uh this job and get the message to the people in a very calm professional manner right otherwise nobody's listening listening to you right simply said Right. So your security business by happenstance led you into racing. Yeah. How did that come about? Of course, a part of 
part of our job in the security industry is also to secure the routes and the movements between point A and B, mm. which is usually done either by cars, limousines, vans, or sometimes in not so nice environments uh, by helicopter. For example, we use a lot of helicopters in uh, ferrying people from uh, the airport into the city of Rio de Janeiro right. or Sao Paulo. Right. It's I much, much safer than... Uh, and most of the big hotels have helipads on top, so uh, that's you know, stuff that we, uh, that we do. Um, so having a sh secure <coughs> A route and B route yep. uh, is mandatory. Right. And, of course, you have to have trained drivers who understand have to understand a threat or even have to interfere or use the car to get out of a situation if it might occur. Right. Kidnap attempt, for example, like that. Have you had any situations like that in a motorcade? Where yes, yes, twice. Where <coughs> you had to get out of there? Yeah, once I uh, had to actually take a car out that was muscling into uh, the motorcade. I can, I can, because it was in the news, so I, I, I can mention the name. It was with the Rolling Stones. Uh, really? In the, I think it was in 91 or so. Somebody was trying to muscle into the motorcade. And uh, then a police, because a police escort, one of the motorcycle police officers came by and tried to wave the guy out. And then he was trying to run over the police officer. Oh, jeez. So he was trying to take out the motorcycle. And I, I was, I think, the third car uh, in the motorcade. And I saw that. And uh, I took him out. Right, just I mean, drove him I, I was I was stranded after that. I yeah. lost the front left wheel, but the guy came to a stop for sure. <laughs> and and then the police jumped on him, arrested him, of course. But did you did you find out what his intentions were, or is he just crazy? he was a, he was a mad fan, he was really just a mad fan, yes, and wanted to stop the yes, motorcade. Yes. And Nobody actually noticed the motorcade just went, and it was just me and the car in, in the in the in the barrier. I pushed him the barrier, I, I spun him, yeah, so not to you know yeah, endanger yeah, yeah. any other you know. Uh, participants right. in, in the traffic situation. So I just spun him and he went straight into the barrier. Okay. So it was a driving school for Yes, for and then of, of, of course that, you know, and, and this you, you learn um, in, in, in professional schools, mainly uh, supplied by manufacturers who also uh, design and uh, create uh, armored vehicles. For example, Mercedes-Benz and Audi, we had very uh, close ties with Mercedes-Benz, then later with Audi, and my my career started with Mercedes-Benz when I was invited to a special uh, security driver course, Kay. mainly for um, drivers of business executives or heads of states, right. governments, basically. So I was the only non-professional driver in that training, and uh, I did pretty well. And then I uh, won that first practice. It's a three-day course Kay. where you learn different skills, and then the l last day, everything is then done under uh, under timing so you have to beat a certain a certain uh, minimum right time uh, so you run against the clock and i set two new records and i won this uh, this uh, training by the high score in points and i was invited a second time won again third time and then uh, uh, the last stage of the third training was in hockenheim racetrack and, oh, okay uh, Mercedes-Benz was there with uh, their DTM uh, team and some prospects for a seat for the next season. And then uh, the Mercedes-Benz uh, guy, uh, Michael Bock, who came over and said, would you like to uh, to try a DTM car? I said, I have no clue what I'm doing. I mean, uh, I never did a race, uh, I never drove in a race car. And <gasps> it was not what the DTM cars are nowadays. They were a little bit more basic. I'm familiar with them. You yeah. know, yeah, a little bit more. Like simple. what year? 
Uh, that was in 91, I believe. Cool. Yeah. Very cool you cars. Know, the AMG car, yeah. Oh, AMG, yeah. the best cars. Yes. Yeah. The best DTM I just, I just, cars. Yeah, they actually looked like, you know, you know like the, the, like, like, like a touring car. Yeah. Still by then, you know. Yeah. So I did a few laps and in the uh, in the car in the car yeah I did a few laps oh. and then I was called in I got I got the board uh, came in uh, so I was already unbuckling it and, and and Michael said no no you stay in the car get some fresh tires and uh, try to do a lap just you know warm them up give them like two good laps and then just just try to you know just do what what do you think just no pressure just try to do a good lap okay so I did I did a hot lap did a cool down lap did another hot lap and then I came in. I think I, uh, I overdid it with the brakes a little bit, so I came in and everything was smoking and stuff. <laughs> and so I said, oh, shit, I broke, the, yeah. I broke something, I burned the brakes, whatever, you know. Because you know, I, I stopped and everybody's looking at me, giving me this strange look. I said, shit, did I break something or, you know. And then I opened the door and they handed me in the timing board. I said, I don't know about, you know, times. Yeah, is this good? Is it good or bad? And, and uh, he said, yeah. You just beat the uh, Brazilian Formula 3 guy who was applying for a cockpit by two tenths of a second. And he oh. was a professional by that time already. So. Holy cow. So anyway, so uh, uh, I said, okay. Uh, what does this mean? What does this mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and, uh, so I got out and uh, then they called um, to Porsche and made some connections. And then uh, I was invited to uh, a test with the Porsche uh, Carrera Cup team. Okay. Uh, one was in, uh, in Nürburgring, the other one was in Hockenheim, and the third one was in Monza. The big track at the Nürburgring? The big track, yeah. The big Holy track, yeah, cow. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, uh, Nürburgring was the, uh, the the Grand Prix uh, track. Okay. No, it was Nürburgring, no, it was Hockenheim, then Monza, and then it was Nürburgring, because I messed up in Monza big time. Okay. Big time. So, you've never raced a car, <laughs> no. and they make this call to Porsche and say, hey, this... This guy wants to wants to run. Yeah, yeah. He's once fast. You, yeah, do you have a cockpit for him? Uh, is there? And then they, they they contacted some of the private teams. They're working, but they were driving with Porsche products with Porsche. Uh, yeah, the P- Porsche works cars. I think they had two in the series. Okay, and the rest was just you know privateers. Privateer, uh, yeah. Some later later become you know pros. Yeah, um, but it was kind of a rookie school for uh, for a jumping board, either in DTM or then in later on in Formula Formula Two. Right. So. So you ran those three races. I ran those like no, no. very fresh. Fre- like very I had no green. clue. I had no clue. Yeah, no clue. How'd you do? Uh, I I did okay. In uh, Nürburgring was only a test. Okay. Uh, um, no, Hockenheim was a test, and then Monza was no Monza was also a test, not a race. Okay. And I didn't crash, but I threw the car in the grass like mm. like wild. I I braked way too late, way too fast. I spun over the curbs. Just after the long straight, yeah, and I flew over the entire chicane and landed in the grass <laughs> on the other s- other end of the uh, of the bend. So it was <laughs> it was pretty spectacular. I didn't break anything. <clears throat> I think I, I, I bent a wishbone, I bent a suspension, but I didn't hit the wall or something. I just I just missed it. So, and then they came over and said, "This guy doesn't get a car from us. He's crazy. We don't give him a car." Okay, and, and then I begged them to please uh, give me another chance. And then I was invited to uh, test in uh, Nürburgring. Okay, and there I did did okay. Right. I think I uh, I did uh, seventh best time or something from, and then yeah. the next year you and then I got I got racing? my first yeah I got my first season then in uh, in nineteen I believe, yeah nineteen ninety three was my first Carrera Cup season Carrera Cup and that was German Carrera Cup German Carrera Cup uh, um, as a support program for the DTM okay and then in ninety five I did my first ninety four I did my first I think it was three or four races in the Porsche Super Cup. Okay. So I did the full season again, my second season. 
and Porsche Carrera Cup, and then uh, had three or four races with the Formula One in the support program in the Porsche Super Cup. Super Cup was the support for, for Formula, the Formula One. One. Yes. So, what tracks were those? I was in uh, that was in Hockenheim. Yeah. Great audience. Okay. Full stadium was amazing. That's cool. Crazy. It was unbelievable. Because it kind of, it, you, you know, the, the Hockenheim racetrack, yeah. you know, went into, run into the uh, motodrome, it's called. You yeah. Know, you actually run into, it's like in a stadium, you know. Right. Amazing. You're surrounded by screaming people. It's beautiful. Uh, it was Hockenheim. It was um, Hockenheim Monza again. Okay. And uh, Monza again. And oh, Monaco. Monaco. I did my wow. first. Uh, street race. Street race, Monaco. 1994, yes. Wow. Street race. When that did was when did you move to Monaco? Oh, much later in two thousand three. Okay. okay, I visited occasionally, usually with the racing, and then I okay. had my first ties with some friends who already lived in Monaco by that time. Right, um, which I'm still f- with uh, friends today. Uh, and uh, then when I did the full season in Porsche Super Cup, I kept bumping into those guys. Uh, and that, that was in nineteen ninety five. Okay, and then I became friends with Klaus Ludwig, who taught me a lot how to set up a car. Right. And uh, who was by then a works driver for AMG Mercedes-Benz. Klaus Ludwig, who became, I think, three three times champion. And what was he racing, DTM? DTM, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the silver, the right. silver um, works DTM car. Yeah. Together with Ellen Lohr, the only female ever to achieve the uh, DTM title. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you've got a super successful business at that point, mm-hmm. and you're how do you conceptualize racing just as a as like a very serious it, hobby it was a very serious hobby and then in 1996 i was spotted by a french semi-professional team a work supported team um and i did my first full season with the then later figt championship with both the official world championship and what kind and of car was that in that was a, a porsche uh, gt2 uh, twin turbo it was like going Oof. from uh, um, a little turboprop uh, um uh, Airplane into a, a fighting jet. That was kind of the difference in terms right. of acceleration. It has serious suspension, serious aerodynamics, so you have to work with both mechanical and also aerodynamical uh, grip, which was completely new for me. So I, yeah. had, again, I had no clue. So, uh, but I was very lucky to um, to race with uh, professionals who were already embedded in the team, and I learned a lot. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah. what was that was that with the first couple years of that series of the FIA. Yes, it was called BPR in 1996. Uh, uh, Bart Peter Okay. Jürgen Bart, uh, yeah. one of the head guys in uh, Porsche Motorsport, uh, working out of Weissach, um, had a um, very big career with Porsche in the 1970s, also in 19, uh, late 60s, 70s, racing with Porsche, uh, also the 917. So Jürgen Bart was uh, one of the head guys. Oh. Uh, you know. Peter Rattel, who is still in the business today, yeah, founding you know, his own series. And then Patrick Peter, who uh, does the Tour Auto uh, today. So the the big uh, classic yep. uh, rally that he does, uh, organize every year. Right. So these were the, the head guys in uh, actually inventing modern GT racing, which then later uh, was taken over by the FIA and became the first uh, world champion uh, GT series right. of modern times. So... During that, like now, that's pretty much professional racing. Yes, that's professional. That racing. must have taken up your entire summer. Absolutely. Yeah. And then '97, I had switched uh, from uh, from uh, the Labra um, team to uh, to join uh, Rogue Racing, who was a Porsche supporter team, and I did two seasons with them, '97, '98, and then I became a professional. 
and, you know, making my first money and uh, and have had a serious uh, sponsorship budget, and that helped me, of course, a lot to uh, to uh, choose the team I raced for and not to be chosen. So it was kind of a right a good. Uh, was a, was so then, where'd you go then when you, you had the big uh, budget? Full season, Le Mans, twenty four hours. I did my first twenty four hours in nineteen ninety six, and Kay. then uh, ninety seven. I think I finished. Yeah, it was ninety seven. I finished. Always with Porsche. Yeah. Finished uh, third overall in the GT class in 97. Wow. My so yeah, but it was my second Le Mans, but it was like, this one it was a very serious one. What was that like? Because again, <coughs> you know, now you're a proficient driver, but it's a big step still to go to Le Mans and drive at night. And it was, that it track. was, it was uh, nothing that I've ever experienced before. I, I did my first 24 hour race uh, in 95. Okay. Which was the twenty four hours of Nurburgring, so because I knew the Nurburgring uh, pretty well, so they drafted me to uh, to race with them. But that was just a one off uh, twenty four hour race, right? Uh, which was crazy because it was a modified Carrera Cup car with a big uh, with a big turbo engine in it. Oh so it was, <laughs> it was it was was a handful on, on the Nurburgring Nordschleife. But then in ninety six, it was uh, my first time with a professional professional race car, and then ninety seven. Um, the uh, we had the ninety nine eleven GT two um, twin turbo Evo, oh, which yeah. was n- another big step forward. Right, and then we were experimenting with uh, the first sequential gearbox the X Track had developed for Porsche. Like down here or on the paddles? Uh, uh, no, no, d- down here. Okay, it's still it's a, sh- a stick, but but you just you know pull a push, but you you, you don't. Uh, so with that car, you in you guys were third at Le Mans. Yes. Wow. Yes. And then 80, uh, 98 again. And in 97, I won my first Daytona 24 hours. Really? With that same team, yes, yes. That's the cool. the GT car, I think we were seventh overall and first in class. And then again in 99 with the same team, um, different car, um, also an Evo, which we became fifth overall and first in, cla- first in class. At, at Daytona, Daytona again? Daytona again, 24. So you've won Daytona twice. Twice, yes. And then 1998, I was invited to race with the Brumos uh, work-supported Porsche team in 98 in the GT1. Ooh. And that was, again, a another step up. Completely different animal, yes. Because that was series aero. That yeah. was series aero, yes. What was that like to drive? Again, like... Uh, like a fighter plane was, uh, we, uh, you know, in the night, it was light rain, we were doing the same times like, and during the day in, in dry condition because <sighs> we had so much aero. Uh, it was stuck. There was slightly any, any, yeah, there was slightly any, any difference. So did you run the GT1 at Le Mans? No. Just Daytona? No, no yeah, n- just Daytona. That was okay. a one-off, yeah. yeah. Wow. Because by that time, all, uh, already to run a GT1 was a uh, multi-million yeah. euro project, or dollar, sure. dollar project by that time, yes. For sure. So what's the highlight of that time period in your career? Winning Daytona or Le Mans? I, I would say Le Mans was, I think, is the most challenging track in sports car racing that you can race on, at least for me. And But um, I think the biggest race for me was 98, uh, the GT1 in Daytona, mm. because we had a big crash in the night. Not me, but my colleague uh, T-Bone, the BMW M3, that hit the wall and came back to the infield, and he couldn't see it. He just turned in at more than 250 kilometers per hour, uh, very fast fourth gear left-hander, and the car just appeared on the track with no lights on. Battery was ripped out and T-boned it. Thank God nobody got hurt, but yeah. we entirely destroyed the front of the car. And I was already on my way <coughs> back home, back to the hotel, and then uh, the team owner came back to us and said, no, no, we, we're going to be back racing. We're going to repair the car. I said, oh, 
it's trash. What, what do you? It's it's flat until the, the windscreen. The whole front was gone, and then they just rebuilt the entire front with everything. The Porsche works team came over, yeah, and supplied one of the noses and the substructure, everything. So the car was back on the track, forty-seven minutes after we came in the pits. Holy was, cow! I mean, we were last on the on uh, of yeah. course the last and on the, on the, on the grid, and uh, um, it was only two drivers left. Because Patrice, who had the accident, was in the medical center still for, you know. So you guys finished it out? We finished it out by 11 o'clock in the morning. We were top 10. And then we were actually quicker than the works car with Alan McNish. And uh, we were lapping two and a half seconds quicker, I think. Wow. We caught up. We caught up. And they were kind of slowing down because they had some problems. And we were just giving it all we got because we had nothing to lose. Right. And we finished uh, third overall and second in class, right after the uh, just behind the uh, the works Porsche. That's insane. Yeah, it was. Yeah, those are the uh, best. That was the that was the toughest race in my life because we did we were doing triple stints. Michelin gave us extra hard tires. Yeah, they were lasting three stints, especially during the early hours or in the morning. Yeah, and so we just came in to refill because you you can't refill and change tires at the same time, Daytona. Oh, okay. And they have a limit to the crew work on the car, so you have two guys or each side to change the wheels. Right. So it takes some time. So we actually saved a solid minute, not changing the, the, so the, the wheels. So you're, uh, the drivers would triple stint as triple well? Triple stint. We stay in the cockpit, just, you know, change the bottle. Yeah. Stay in the, stay in the cockpit and just refueling and out again yeah, on the same tires. Wow. So That's how we gained the time that we needed right. to come back. Right. Okay, I get it now. Any big crashes in the car ever? No, I had... Uh, one very embarrassing <laughs> incident. Oh yeah, let's hear it. Because I was protesting <clears throat> to my team that I never, you know, was good enough to qualify, and I said, you know, I, I never get a chance, so I can't improve. And okay. And then uh, Jacques Lecon from Malabra competition came over and said, "Okay, you qualify your car, Le Mans." Okay, you asked said, for it. No, I, said, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean it. No, you qualify the car. So I was, you know, overly excited, and I just. Hit it a bit too 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 early, and I spun just exiting Tat Rouge and hit the wall just oh. for the straight. Tire, the tire wasn't just on, on temperature yet, so I just was a little bit over enthusiastic. And then he ke- kept calling me on the radio. Where am? Where are you? Where are you? Oh no, Andre, qu'est-ce que tu fais? Oh no, <laughs> I, I didn't dare to tell him that I'm standing on the wall, <laughs> just exiting Tat Rouge. And then he saw it, of course, on the video. And yeah, I, I can't repeat what he told me, but. Uh, Anyway, so there was. Uh, did they I, get it I fixed? Did, we got it fixed, but uh, yeah, I was, I was banned for the qualifying. Then you <laughs> for the next, I believe, ten races. <laughs> uh, and then we, we qualified the car, but it was kind of, it was very, very close, very close. Right now, because we lost so much time to fix it. Right, right. So you didn't have any big crashes in the car, but you had a big snowmobile accident pretty recently, yeah. no? Yeah, that was no. Actually, that was in two thousand fifteen. Okay. Not, yeah, quite some time ago. But yeah, is that uh, your yeah. biggest? Incident? I think that was the biggest incident I have uh, ahead uh, on any uh, motor vehicle. Right. Uh, it's a group of some uh, excessive people <laughs> that meet some as two, as f- two uh, Formula One uh, ex Formula One uh, champions and. Uh, to finish rally champions and some other crazy guys. So it's between seven and eight, nine guys. What was this, just and a group of buddies? group of buddies, and we usually meet uh, up in North Lapland. 
Where's that? In the winter in uh, Finland. Okay. North Finland, just on the border uh, towards Nor- Norway. Okay. It's very cold in the winter, minus 32 degrees yeah. centigrade. So we do a tour for about 10 days, uh, uh, s- spend the nights in log houses and do a little tour. And then the last day is a snowmobile race. Of course. Frozen Lake. Of course. Before going home. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> so everybody's like flat out. And I was, I think I was fourth out of nine. And the guy in front of me sprayed so much ice that I didn't see when he was breaking. He broke a bit too early before, and you know, there's a passage through the woods and then coming back on the lake again. So okay. kind of a round course, like three laps. And um, I touched him and I flipped the thing and I landed on my back. Pretty and fast. I was, yeah, I was about 100 north of 140 kilometers per hour. So I was like, and I mean, we have protection, of course, you know, we're protected with everything, but I landed flat on my back and... Uh, when I woke up, everyone was standing around me, giving me this strange look, and uh, everything was, you know, I didn't damage the thing, so we just put it back on the, I think I broke some of the... Uh, body the, work the or body something. Work. Yeah, yeah, it was nothing, nothing major. So the thing was still drivable. And then we just limped back to the uh, to log house, and I uh, had a cold shower, and then a hot sauna, and another shower, and everything was sore and swollen. Sure. And I didn't realize I had two broken vertebrae and three pop discs. I didn't realize. You just thought you were sore. Yeah, just sore. Everything is shoulders. Everything was swollen, blue, and bruised. And thank God, nothing was broken. So the next morning, we uh, all went home. Uh, so I flew from. We had a two and a half hour drive with Land Rovers from uh, the position we were in northern Lapland to Levy, which is like the northest uh, airport Kay. in uh, Finland, and then flew to Helsinki and then changed flights to Munich. And in Munich, uh, I couldn't get out of the plane anymore. I couldn't move from sitting. Yeah, from sitting. And I started, you know, developing sweat. I had pain. I couldn't believe it. And then they evac me from the plane. And then I called my doctor, uh, a specialist in Austria, who uh, operated me several times on different, you know, accidents, knees, ankles, stuff that sometimes goes when you work out hard or yeah. crash with a mountain bike and stuff like that. So, so he has a lot of experience with my condition. And he said, if you can, just, you know, uh, come over and we check you out fully. He runs a private hospital just on the border between Germany and Austria. Okay. He does mainly professional uh, um, sportsmen, ski professionals. Uh, he does uh, several Formula One drivers. So whenever they have an issue, and uh, he, you know, put me in the tube and um, got me out. I said, "Don't move. You have two ver- two broken vertebrae." So they put me into a kind of a corsage. Yeah. Um, I didn't have to get the. Um, Spine could operate it because they were cracked, but they were still in, the, in a good position. So right. they didn't have to fuse them or whatever. And I was I was clear to to go. And uh, four weeks later, I was I was feeling better. Okay. And that's that was it. You were recovered. No, that was it. After four weeks, I was clear to fly to Los Angeles. Okay. And in Los Angeles, during the flight, a vein popped in my back. A vein popped. Yes. I had internal bleeding. So I didn't in your back, yes. During the flight, yeah, because they 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 reckon because of the air pressure or whatever, something started bleeding inside and I had a bacteria in my body and I was in very very bad shape when I arrived. A day later, I was in Cedar Sinai. I stayed for more than one and a half months in the hospital. Really? Yeah, I was in bad condition. So what what kept you in the hospital so long? Like an inf- infection? An infection, yeah, the sepsis, a in sepsis, sepsis. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, and then th- I was operated on the back fixed it so they fixed the the blood vessel yeah yeah, yeah. Well, yeah and then what what what's the program for that just dialysis to, to clean no no yeah you're, you're on a constant uh, infusion of uh, antibiotics 
Okay. Uh, try to clear out the infection of the body. <sighs> yeah, that was tough times. What's a, m- a month and a half like in the hospital? Yeah, no, I was I was I was grounded for three months. Oh uh, my goodness! Uh, thank God, three I months. Yeah, three months in total. Yeah, one and a half uh, month in hospital. And then they kicked me out, and I I could recover. I have a small flat in Los Angeles, so I could recover there. And uh, I had a doctor coming every day to check on me and uh, make sure that I got the uh, I got enough juice to uh, jeez support myself. So it just so I had to slowly healed. Yeah, every four hours I had to get, give me an infusion. You know, I had a big line in my arm, so uh, I was I, I lost. I think in those in the first three or four weeks, I think I lost nearly fifteen kilos of body weight. Like just I was, from no, no, just freaking. Yeah, I couldn't eat. I couldn't do anything from not moving, right? Uh, yeah, not exactly, eating. You know, oh man. Oh man. That was a lesson. That must have been a little bit. I don't know how, how I'd feel like you'd be scary a little bit, like seeing, no, seeing how much I'd, weight I, go. I, I usually, you know, make my little jokes and stuff. I don't take stuff too serious, you know, you know. Right. Based on the previous experiences with having little accidents and stuff like that. So I was joking with the doctor and he said, Andre, you're in high fever for more than 10 days now. And if you, if you don't take the serious now, if you don't recover rather quickly, you can't get the fever down. Yeah. And you can't get the fa- infection under control. We're going to sedate you and we're going to put you in the fridge, 18 degrees, <sighs> intensive care. And I said, what? And then I started coming to, to senses and I took the whole thing a little bit more serious. Wow. And then, um, and then after um, I think about th- two or three weeks, they finally found the source of that infection and then they operated me. What was it? Just... You know, just some some uh, some pocket that had developed and yeah. that uh, was causing the infection. It didn't go away because it was kind of a uh, too enclosed, right? Uh, pocket. And it was in your back, in my back, yes. So it was from the surgery, you yes. think? Yes. Wow. So we believe that the that the bacteria got into uh, the body at some point when they um, treated the 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 um, the. F- damage from the first accident and the, and the first uh, basically first 10 days after the accident I got constant injections in the back mm. um, to make it heal um, also to prevent infection from happening so there were needles going in my body mm. occasionally and probably that through that some bacteria got into my body wow that's how they reckon it happened do you uh, are you sore still at all no no I just have to uh, watch out a little bit you know Lifting heavy stuff in a, in a silly way, so I really have to right. watch out a little bit what I'm doing. Do you have a, uh, I mean, it sounds like you've had a lot of injuries. Do you have a regimen for whatever it may be, sauna or weightlifting or healthy eating, stuff yeah, like not, that? Not, I, I train a lot. In the f- uh, I love going out in the nature. I do a lot of swimming. Okay. I've got to live near the ocean, so in the sea, I can I can uh, swim every morning. So that's uh, that helped me actually to recover mm. from, from that accident, doing a lot of swimming. Uh, like out in the sea, not like uh, like on the shore, not on the beach, not beach playing, but serious swimming out in the sea. That helped a lot. Uh, mountain biking is very good. Kay. So I stopped w- lifting heavy weights. Uh, right. So no more barbells. Right. Yeah. Right. More working with my body and with nature. Right. Now, s- to jump to living in Monaco, how do you, how does someone live in? You ha- I've heard anyways. You have to know someone there or get in somehow. No, actually, I decided, uh, as I said initially, uh, I was kind of fed up with uh, the German uh, bureaucracy, bureaucracy and okay. uh, sometimes you know the little uh, 
very slow structures that they have to deal with. And I just wanted to also go out and internationalize my company more. So mm-hmm. in 2003, I moved the headquarters, as I said, to Miami, um, made my um, best guys becoming partners in the German uh, branch company to continue running, Kay. mainly deans with the show business related assignments. And I privately moved to uh, to uh, the south of France, to Monaco. Right. And uh, I had a good friend of mine who was a lawyer out of Frankfurt, Germany, who had also uh, an office in Miami and an office in Monaco. So he was oh. actually helping people to come to Monaco, going through all the legal requirements, the structures and stuff like that. But I was not a multimillionaire when I came. So sure. I, I actually was invited to live in Monaco through my status being um, a former professional race driver. Oh, okay. That convinced them because they love these kind of people. There's a lot of yeah. uh, Formula One drivers. Right. I think the majority of Formula One drivers lives in Monaco. Right. And also other professional sportsmen, runners, athletic. Uh, yeah, footballers. Athletic, and footballers, yeah. yeah. Uh, tennis players, a lot of tennis players. Huh. Roger Federer, I think he has an apartment there and various others. Right. Yes. So do you hang out with any F1 guys? Uh, yeah, uh, I bumped into uh, Mika Hecken uh, right in the beginning. Okay. Then our two daughters are the same age, so they went to school together. Okay. In the same class, actually. So we bumped into each other regularly, and then we just became friends over time. And then his buddy, David Coulter, joined later. And, uh, right. You know, so, yeah, we meet occasionally, and uh, we have also some business uh, ideas together. So, so was Hackenden involved in the snowmobiling? No, no. Okay. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> that was somebody else, also a Finn. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's what I figured. Yeah, yeah. Right. So now... Well, I know you because you started racing vintage cars yes. out of here, out of Legendary. Yeah, absolutely. In a yeah, Cobra. Yeah. yeah, I asked your father to build me a race car. Right. Yeah. And then what was the first race? Where did you guys go? The Glen? Uh, Mostport? No. I think it was Mostport, actually. Yeah, okay. I think it was Mostport. That okay. was my first race here. Right. Yeah. Some scary moments in that car. Yeah, no kidding. The wheel spin going up the hill. I couldn't oh. believe it. So is it, yeah, four <laughs> you, big, I mean, big you block know, Cobra. Yeah, big block Cobra was... Uh, I mean, I must say, that was, aside from the modern GT cars I drove, I think that was the scariest animal I ever drove. Yeah. The 427 Big Black Cobras. Yeah. Uh, it was just over one ton weight, you know, just over 1,000 kilos. And yeah. uh, I think we dynoed the engine at 680 horses. We tuned it down, I think, to 640 or something. But still, I mean, imagine the, the power weight ratio is just ridiculous. Crazy. With a car... With equipped with brakes, steering, suspension from 1965. Yeah, we're not talking about a modern, modern race car. You know, where actually can you can work with? There's no aero. No. Everything. No. There's no aero. No, it's your helmet's the aero. <laughs> my helmet is the aero. That little ridiculous windscreen. <laughs> yeah. And uh, everything is 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 uh, mechanical, mechanical grip. So we really have to completely uh, learn a different uh, material, how to really set up the car, and that that took a while. But I was. I was very well, well you covered were fa- here. You were with fast with right away. Yeah, but you know, I was also you know had great support here from Legendary. Yeah, and uh, they built me a great car, and they built it safe. That yeah, actually, that a- enables me to drive fast. Yeah, for sure. You know, we got some substructure in the car, that basically a roll cage around me. Yeah, I mean, you know, you saw the car when yeah. when it was built, and uh, it's a very safe car. I have no problem going fast with the thing. Yeah, I drove it at Mostport to bed the brakes one time. Oh, just okay. Slowly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember. Uh, and. Yeah, this guy. This crazy. guy's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's. This guy's nuts. The tor- yeah, the talk is is, is absolutely mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. So now, the world has changed so much since you started your company. Yes. With technology, yes. 
and technological threats and internet threats and stuff yes. how do, how has that changed your business uh first of all covid and the restrictions that came with it especially the restrictions to travel sure me being a german passport holder still uh, i could apply for a monaco a monaco uh, passport but i just keep out of practicality uh, the german passport i have yeah um didn't enable me to visit my office for nearly two years so in Germany, in, in, uh, no, in, in in America, in, right, right, in America. So yeah. I was mainly running the U.S. office. I had an office manager, of course, secretary. So I had some staff. But you know, being there and actually being physically uh, on location and taking care of our mainly U.S. clients in the corporate world yeah. was absolutely impossible. And then also, nobody was traveling anymore. No more board meetings abroad. We organized a lot of board meetings for different companies all over the world, uh, Asia, uh, even even. East Africa, yeah. Uh, depending on where you know uh, different uh, hubs of different clients were located, and uh, nobody was traveling anymore. It was staying home, uh, doing Zoom meetings, right? And nobody was uh, requiring our services anymore. So basically, we took a big dive in the company. I bet. Yeah. So yeah. and then, of course, we recovered. Especially the show business came back. When, with, you know, I think even much bigger because there were millions of tickets sold prior to uh, to COVID, and then all these shows got canceled. So, so it was not only the new shows that were set up, but all the old shows that had to be uh, then set up and, 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 and played. Uh, so the German company did very, very well, but the executive protection business suffered um, continuously after, you know, for quite, a, for quite some time. Sure. And then also what you said, the, the, the technology, technology changed, so we have a... L- lot more dealings with cyber security um, people trying to penetrate into the networks of companies trying to steal information so uh, we have two teams who are specialized in that one is based out of london and the other one is based out of hong kong that takes care of the asian market so these people come in especially for these type of threats and clean out uh, a company uh, right. a company's threats right by, by setting up uh, certain filters or software that deals with that Right. I couldn't do that. Yeah. I, yeah, I wouldn't yeah, know what yeah, to yeah. do with that. Yeah. Well, you got, yeah, smart people. Now you have people are actually trained with that. Yeah. They're all former intelligence, former okay. government intelligence. Yeah. Right. That's, Those that's would be yeah, the best yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Huh. Yeah. So, yeah, now, like, th- just thinking aloud here, like, instead of holding, you know, a highly valuable person ransom, they can just do it online. They, they do it online. Yeah. They hold a company ransom. Wow. Yes. So has the corporate stuff come back? Because, you know, everyone's, whatever percentage of people are still working from home, still doing Zoom meetings, people got accustomed to that. Yeah, there's there's two effects. Okay. Um, one effect is um, some of the meetings, I think, became more efficient because mm. they were held on location, mm. had access to certain material, access to people presenting. The second effect is they understood how much money they were saving. Mm. A big corporate event you know, by some company X um, held to be held in Singapore, for example, uh, which is one of the, the biggest uh, hubs for the Asian market uh, developments. It costs easy between one and a half and uh, one point seven million for you know ten days. Right. The advanced team, then all the technologies has to be imported. The CEO, the board comes in private jets. I mean, imagine this. This is. The hotels, of course, the best hotels on location. Then the side programs. Yeah. Um, usually 
the spouses follow, and then there's a there's a spouse program that's running according to uh, accordingly with the meeting scheduled, and uh, that costs a lot of money. Suddenly, this company understood how much money they're saving. Mm. So many many stay home now, and they have like one event per year, and not four or five. Right, right. Which then requires less activity from 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 our side. Right. So you, would you say you're now back more doing the concert stuff? The the German branch company, which yeah. which I'm not involved in, uh, okay. as you know, as uh, the guy in the background, yes, but not in the operational business. Sure, uh, is doing very well. I'm very proud of my uh, guys who run the company. Um, they did very well. Also through COVID, we didn't lay off anybody. Wow. I mean, we had to pump in a lot of money in, in order to keep everybody afloat and to keep the companies afloat. But we we didn't have to lay off anybody. We kept all the core team still with us. Wow. Which we were proud of. And uh, the guys are very, very happy. And they're more motivated than ever before. Yeah. Um, uh, they did very well. But um, the, um, the executive uh, protection business is still um, to be further developed. Right. Let's put it that way. Right. So what does, the, what does the future hold? What kind of future, you know, challenges uh, as we move into, you know, AI and, and, and all these things? Um, is it more in that, uh, you know, technology security type stuff? I, I believe so. I believe this is a certain future for, for our line of work. I mean, people still have to move. People still traveling. People still have um, visits to make mm. to customers. So there will be still a big portion of that work um, involving services like ours. But I believe that the penetration attempts into companies, as you said, hold like the the company ransom mm-hmm. will will develop further. And uh, as all the benefits that we see from AI um, uh, will have the other effect, of course, that it will be used uh, in a very negative way. Right. And nobody knows as of yet how to deal with that. Right. To what extent this is going to uh, require yeah. Yeah, new technology. Because you always have to, or we do have to try to be a step ahead right. of everybody. And this will be, I believe, very, very difficult. Yeah. So what does the future hold for racing for you? I don't know. I'm 62 and I feel fresh. Yeah. I want to give it a go. Yeah. Some more Maybe vintage yeah, yeah, racing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Some more vintage, yeah. yeah. For the fun of it. Yeah. yeah for the fun of it. The, uh, did you, you've done the Coda race. Yes, I did. That's yes. the best one. Uh, yeah. I think it's, it's yeah. amazing. It's amazing. It's like uh, the, yes. what is it, the uh, vintage, you know, yeah. U.S. championship or whatever. Yes, yes. I, I think I had pole in 2014, 13 or 14, I believe it was. At pole position in the final race, and I was disqualified because somebody protested against my brakes. Because uh. we had tweaked the brakes just a little bit. And I said, no, you can't. I said, I've been running this for the entire season, and nobody ever, I mean, you see the brakes. Nobody ever, you know, said anything. Yeah. Uh, t- technical inspection always, you know, had it passed. And uh, somebody protested, and they sent me home. <laughs> so you got to get another shot at it. Yeah. Right. We changed the brakes, but they didn't let us because I did the time on, on, on that by right. then illegal brakes. Yeah. Right, and they're short races. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I couldn't, I couldn't uh, change it, but we learned our lesson. Good. So I ask every guest uh, the last question. I ask, what kind of advice would you give for? I mean, you're a very successful entrepreneur. 
what kind of advice would you give for someone who's young, who wants to start their own business or has, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit and, and wants to do something you know, big like you've done? Um, I mean, I could easily say th something like follow your dream, um, mm -hmm. which can be very complicated if you don't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't have the funding to do that. In the beginning, there's always a very, very dry time mm. where you basically um, turn around each and every dollar you make. And uh, if you consume it, if you invest it, invest it in what? And so how to progress and make your company grow, especially when you're not so funded and everything that you earn needs to be pumped into the business. Um, I would say a lesson I learned through the many years I've been doing this business, especially in the security business, where a lot of a lot of reaction to certain situations based upon your experience mm. and to a certain feeling that you have. Mm. And I would say intuition always beats intelligence. Mm. And that never let me down. Before I analyze things like thoroughly, I have a gut feeling, a certain gut feeling that sometimes comes up and you say, something's not right. That, by, that by the way, saved my life t at least two times, having that feeling before a situation actually occurred. Just a strange feeling, so something's wrong here. To understand that feeling and to listen to it, to listen to your gut feeling. Right. That's, what, that's the advice I would give to yeah, everybody. that's good advice. Before you analyze everything, you go through the numbers, everything is uh, sharp and, and calculated and you know, worked out to the very last detail. Give it another thought and listen to your inner voice. Listen to your guts. Mm, that's good. Intuition beats intelligence. Yeah. That would be the uh, advice I would give. Well, to now, now that you teased us, you got to give us the story of how your intuition saved your life. This one case, yeah. This one case, somebody approached um, the group of people that I was working for. I was the team leader. What country? Uh, France. Okay. Uh, south of France, Marseille. Okay. And... Uh, I spotted um, the uh, attacker, the later attacker, out of a crowd. The way the way he walked, the way the, uh, and there were hundreds of people around us. So I just somehow spotted that guy, and it, I couldn't get my eyes off him. Mm. And at some point, I approached him just to get a closer look because I, saw, and I, knew, I, I had the feeling something's wrong. Mm. And I just spoke to him. I said, "Hey, you okay?" And I just and he turned around and pulled a gun on me and tried to shoot me in the head. What did you do? He was, I was, I was able to disarm him because I was kind of prepared. Something was wrong. It was just a gut feeling. There was nothing that could indicate, nothing visible, physically visible. Yeah. It was just a feeling. Something was wrong. The way he walked, the way he looked, maybe, the way he turned around. Huh. And then he saw me spotting him, and I approached him and said, "You okay?" And and he just turned around and pulled a pull pulled a gun. And you grabbed it. I, I got the I, I I got it yeah I I got the gun off him and then he of course the police jumped on him who were present at that time and uh, we didn't know what actually what he was going for. Wow, another crazy incident and uh, I never I never actually I never found out what his real intentions were. Huh. Uh, but uh, that was a situation where a pure gut feeling kind of saved me or saved the client in this case. Right. Well, you too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Well, I appreciate you coming on. 
Thanks so much. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. And yeah. uh, thanks for. I appreciate you keeping us safe at every concert and, and, you know, in the, in the background. Yeah. It's, it's, it's my guys who do that. I, yeah. I, uh, I sometimes pull the strings from the back a little bit, but, uh, it's, 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 it's the guys yeah. in the first row who, right. who do a great job. Yes. Good. Good. And I'm very thankful for my teams also that I had with me for so many years. Yeah. So we'll, uh, we'll look forward to some vintage racing. Absolutely. Likewise. Right on. Yeah. All right. Take Good. care. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having me again. See you guys next week.